2: Down, we'll here, on Hallow, here we are on
3: Hollowed Ground. You're this listening to Ask a Lawyer life. with me, Mike Connors. And again, the reason it's Hollowed Ground, we're on Trinity Church property right next to the Trinity Church Cemetery. A lot of famous Americans buried there, early famous Americans. And, you know, talking about some of the early American history, we lost one of the greats as far as Revolutionary War history. Tom Fleming died this week. And for those of you who don't know Tom Fleming, you probably all know him because you probably saw him on TV at some interview or other on the History Channel or some of the other stations when they talked about the Revolutionary War. But he, he wrote a number of great books, and what he had to—his great talent, I think, was able to bring to life the characters of the Revolutionary War era and make them real human beings and ex- explain— their thought process and what they were thinking. and uh, A
4: master a, storyteller. Yes, Just a very a good storyteller. storyteller.
3: To, yeah. I mean, he was, even, he was at the Civil War Roundtable a couple of times because he did occasionally uh, go, you know, beyond the Revolutionary War. And one time we, we had a very good show one time on the history of Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, which was part of his book on uh, Thomas Jefferson and why Thomas Jefferson never acted against slavery. But, you know, a great loss. Tom Fleming, rest in peace, uh, he'll be missed. And I think there'll be a memorial service this fall sometime, so we'll get it out there to the public for those of you who uh, who knew Tom. Uh, tonight we're going to have on, we're going to do, you know, the first part of the show, as most of you know, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion. Tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about religion through the Catholic Extension Network And then we're going to talk to uh, the Forgotten War, in my mind, to a lot of people, World War I. We're talking to historian Ed Langell, who I met at an event not that long ago on Grant's birthday. And getting back to estate planning, here's one misconception that I see a lot of people are making right now. You know, estate taxes, death taxes, a lot of people in the middle class do not have to worry about estate and death taxes. Because right now it's $5,125,000 tax-free New York State, $5,490,000 tax free the
5: federal government. Please don't move to New Jersey. Um, so in a lot of cases, not that hard to get the assets out tax-free. So, But with some people, they're still afraid of these taxes. And so they do things like give away their house to their kids, thinking it's going to save on taxes. And if the kids don't live in the house you know, assuming the parents paid 50000 for the house and it's worth a million dollars when the parents die, it's going to cost the kids $300,000 in capital gains taxes. The same principle if you have stocks. If you paid $50,000 for stocks some years back and it's worth $500,000 today and you just give the stocks to your kids, when your kids sell those stocks, they're going to pay capital gains. In that example I just gave, we're talking about $150,000 in capital gains taxes. So the greater danger to a lot of people right now is planning it wrong. It's not the death tax. It's the capital gains tax when you transfer assets in the wrong way. And if you ever want to come into Connors & Sullivan, we'll tell you how to do the right way, and the right way usually is through a trust agreement. It's your house as long as you're alive. It's your stock portfolio as long as you're alive. And after you're gone, it passes to the next generation without going to probate, saving the assets usually from nursing home bills, and tax-free as far as capital gains taxes. And we take advantage of the tax laws as far as death taxes, and get at least five million out tax free per person. And that can be five million for husband, five million for wife, you know, brother, or sister, sometimes we could do five million each. In any event, let's try to start taking some questions. Beth, you have an email question. I know it's a little complicated. I do,
4: and it's a long one. So this is this is what Harry has written to us. I co own a house with my ex wife. She lives in the house on Staten Island with my 23-year-old son. The divorce decreed that the house should be sold the day he turned 21. The house was on the market a few times but was never sold. January 2015, she listed the house again, and we got a decent offer, which was accepted. The buyer had a lawyer, put a down payment of 10%, and had an engineer inspect and okay the house. My ex-wife decided not to sign the contracts and used the excuse of not having enough money and having two dogs and three cats so no one would rent to her. I've been told that I need a lawyer and would need a receiver to force her out. Can you advise how long does this process normally take the general cost, and does the receiver sell at market value or much lower price? Thank you.
3: Okay, so it's hard to answer all these questions quickly. The one thing is obviously you need a lawyer, Harry, because otherwise your wife's going to stay in the house forever or your ex-wife. And, you know, to have whatever, two cats and three dogs or three dogs and two cats is not a legal excuse. She signed an agreement saying she would sell the house when your son turned 21, he's now 23. If you let her sit there, she's going to sit there forever. So you do need to get a lawyer. Now, you know, I we usually don't practice uh, divorces or post-divorce separation agreements or uh, division of property, but obviously you have rights. You can see a lawyer. One of the the rights, one way you can go through it is what we call a partition action that you both, you and your wife both own the property and you can force a sale of the property. Now, It's a little bit about playing chicken because nobody wants the property to go up for auction, but including your wife. But one of the things you would have the opportunity of doing, if you can get somebody to back you up a little bit, you own 50% of this house. (coughs) So let's say it's worth $500,000. All you have to do is bid $250,000 and you can buy the, the whole house. So you can keep a general market floor if it goes to an auction and you think the referee, the prices are not high, high enough to meet your satisfaction, you can go in and bid since you have 50% equity. And the thing is, what you got to do is push your wife. Maybe a lawyer should serve her with papers or whatever on an action for petition, or maybe you go back to the judge who uh, was in charge of the divorce and you ask him for judicial intervention You know, to, to settle the matter. But in any event, you need to get a lawyer, serve your wife with papers so she gets a lawyer, and maybe between the lawyers and the parties, something could be worked out. And as far as how much it costs, unfortunately, if your wife you know, fights you day one to end, it's going to be expensive, and it's going to take time. And the court system works in an exceedingly slow manner, and it's not worth it to your wife to go through court, and it's not worth it for you to go through court, but you at least got to get the ball started. Otherwise, your wife's going to sit in the house forever. Hopefully, the value of the real estate has been going up in the last couple of years, but i know staten island hasn't been going up as much as the rest of the city so you know you do need to get a lawyer you do need to do something because if you sit around and do nothing your wife's going to sit in that house forever and it might be that your son may end up with that house and you'll never see you know any part of it and by the way if you have any questions about estate planning or elder law you can always give us a call or you can email us and our email answer uh, it, our email, I'm sorry, is the answer at connorsandullivan dot com. dot com. The answer at connorsandullivan dot com. We answer all our email questions. Occasionally, we don't answer them on the radio, obviously, because we can't get enough information to answer the question properly. If you want to give us a call right now, the phone number at the studio right now is 1-866-970-9622. 1-866-970-9622. 1-866-970-9622. Again, you can email us at theansweratconnorsandsullivan dot com. And by the way, if you're emailing us, you may always you may also want to check us out on Facebook. Beth, how do they do that?
4: Um, if you have a Facebook account, look for us. Ask the lawyer with Mike Connors on Facebook and you can do that search and you'll find us and then like our page and then you know on your news feed you'll see who's coming up and also you'll get our um old the it'll how to get to the podcast but also our old interviews um that we have a we have them on youtube and you can click right there and listen to them and some of them are very very interesting
3: yeah, I mean, some some of my favorite interviews are L.Q. Jones, a great character actor, you know, who's in the Wild Bunch, Ride the High Country, and about 400 TV shows, and including a dozen Gunsmokes or whatever. Uh, again, that was L.Q. Jones. He was also in Casino with uh, Robert De Niro, and he, he tells a very funny story about that. And upcoming, we have uh, Tuskegee Airman Colonel Brown, and he's going to be talking about the time he was doing a raid over Austria, was shot down, captured by the townspeople, very harrowing experience, and he was better off, and he eventually was better off going to a German prisoner of war camp where he said he was reasonably well treated, maybe better treated than he was in some places in the United States at the time. And, you know, a lot of people don't remember the history, but the the United States services, military services during World War II was segregated, And, you know, it's hard to believe, and, I mean, it was 70-some-odd years ago, but that's really not that long a time period. But the United States military, the United States Army was segregated in World War II. So it's a little bit of history, and we're going to be talking to uh, Colonel Brown next week. Now, later on, we're going to be talking, we're going to have some actors on, two of my favorite actors, James Parks, great character actor, son of Michael Parks, and Bruce Campbell. And I know Bruce Campbell is, uh, you know, one of your favorites, Beth, along with Michael.
4: <laughs> the chin. Yeah. Baba Hotep.
3: <laughs> so he's got a book out, and he's going to be doing a book tour in New York. So we'll give you more information on that, I think, next, probably the the week of the uh, 12th. He's going to do a book tour, I think, in, in New Jersey on the 14th. So on the 12th, we'll have him on our show, and he'll tell you where he's going to be in uh New Jersey on, you know, August 14th. Okay, so we're running past our time a little bit. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors, accompanied by his wife, Beth. And we'll take a short break and be back in a few minutes, and then we'll be talking to Ed Langell about World War I and Catholic extension.
1: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me.
4: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time. gradually quit going
6: no I didn't take my faith seriously which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with
0: you can have
1: a beautiful car a big fancy home but if you don't have Christ in your life there's an emptiness
6: that's there
7: we are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust especially as a man but there's a true freedom to not be
0: enslaved but to attach ourselves to God and to be free thank God I'm home now that I'm back in the Catholic Church I'm a new person. I love it.
2: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
0: You're coming home to a Catholic family
1: where people today just embrace you.
2: If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more.
8: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, August 15th at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth, Queens at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens on Wednesday, August August 16th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Friday, August 18th at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
8: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718 718- 238 That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com.
8: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com.
1: Connors and Sullivan. Plan now or later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622.
3: Okay, well, welcome back. Now, as you just heard from Matt, we're doing some seminars in August in Queens. We're going to be in in Connelly's Corner on August 15th. We're going to be at Howard Beach at Lenny's Clam Bar on August 15th. 16th, and on Friday, August 18th, we're going to be in Bayside at the Adria. And if you want to attend one of the seminars, there's no charge to do it, but give us a call just so we have the proper seating arranged. Our phone number is 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. And you know, a lot of you out there ask me every once in a while. You know, I have a group. I have, uh, you know, whether it's a civic organization, a church group, a synagogue. If you want us to speak, you know, you can give us a call. We'll go out there, we'll speak. And, you know, I I do seminars at all sorts of organizations all the time. I think you can name any kind of organization. We'll go out there and we'll speak to your church group. We'll speak to your synagogue. We'll speak to your Knights of Columbus, whatever it is. And the conversation is going to be about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And believe me, it's in my DNA. You've worked very hard to pay the mortgage off on your house. I don't want to see your house, part of it, or necessarily go for the payment of taxes. I want to avoid the tax if we can. That's what's in my DNA. Let's not have your family pay taxes. I don't want to have your house lost to nursing home bills. And, of course, that's one of the greatest dangers today. People come into the office all the time. I'm worried about my kids paying too much in taxes. Meanwhile, they got a house that's worth $800, $900, $1 million, and it's at risk for nursing home bills. The average cost of a nursing home right now in New York is Approaching $15,000 a month, believe me, there are a lot of nursing homes that are charging more than that in Manhattan. That is $500 a day. And a lot of middle-class families, if you don't plan in advance, can very easily be bankrupted. And if you do want to plan in advance, come to see us at Connors & Sullivan. We'll try to put a plan together for you. There's no one right answer for everybody. But if you own a house, you want to avoid probate. You don't want to have to go through court after you're gone. You don't want to have to pay taxes. You want to save that house from nursing home bills. Come in. We'll talk about it. Nine out of ten times, I'm going to recommend a trust. Occasionally, you know, there might be an exception to that rule if we have a single child living in the house, things like that. But nine out of ten times, 19 times out of 20, we're going to recommend a trust. What's a trust agreement? It's your house as long as you're alive. After you're gone, it passes to the next generation. No capital gains tax, no death tax save the house from nursing home bills, and avoid going through court and avoiding probate. And, you know, some people say, what's probate? If when you pass away there are assets in your name alone when you die, those assets have to go through court. And court system works in an exceedingly slow manner. It's just the nature of the beast. You don't want your heirs, your relatives, to have to go through court. You want them to avoid having to go through court, and that's avoiding probate. And, again, if you want to talk to me or one of the other attorneys at Connors & Sullivan, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. All right, Beth, are you going to go to any of the seminars this time around?
4: I'll I'll be there at least to pick you up sometimes. How okay. about that? Yeah. I okay. had the best time meeting some of the the our listeners. Thank you ladies so much. It was wonderful. I have one more question, Mike. Do we have time for yeah, it? Yeah, I not? think we
3: have we have a few minutes before our next break.
4: Here here was it was one of the church ladies and I promised her I'd uh, what she went she came she was coming home from work, and she saw the the police tape all around the door of her of one of her neighbors. Her neighbor had died in the house and evidently had had been in the house about three weeks before anybody realized that she had passed away um and you know it her affairs were not in order. Um, And basically, the the lady, she said, what on earth? She was very, very upset. What can I do? What, what should I tell somebody to do? And if there's somebody that's living, obviously, the lady lived by herself. What as a community should we do to help these people?
3: I don't know. That's a hard question. You know, it seems way too often we get a phone call that somebody's passed away in an apartment or a house and nobody knew about it for three weeks, three months. Um, it happens more than I'd like to talk about. And I don't know. Sometimes if you see a neighbor, if they're elderly, and even if they're not elderly, if you don't see them for a while, maybe just check. I mean, I we, we have a case right now in Manhattan Poor lady passed away, and uh, she was there, I think, for a couple of months. And, you know, now there are maggots coming out of her apartment going into the next few apartments. So it's sad. You know, there are people out there that uh, don't have anybody to check on them. And and if you have the opportunity to check on your neighbor, please do that. And, of course, one of the things, uh, and I mean this is the business side of it, and that's all I can really address it sometimes... You know, if you have a will, if you have an executor under your will, it'll be easier to take that tape, that seal off the apartment than if you don't. Because in some cases, that seal goes across. If you don't have relatives that are cooperative, we don't have a will. It may take a very long time to get that seal removed. And, you know, bad things can happen, let alone just some things can be ruined, you know, in the the apartment. Sometimes... Pets a- end up in there that nobody knew about because they were hiding when the emergency workers came in there. You know, a cat maybe is hiding in the corner and nobody knows there's a cat there. Uh, you know, but one of the things is have a will. That's the first step. How we can all probably do a better job on, on checking on our neighbors and all do a better job of trying to help each other. And if you don't hear some, you don't hear somebody, you know, call, do something. And I know. You know, even in our office sometimes we say, well, let's check on somebody we haven't heard from. Them. And it's always a little strange because you don't want to knock on somebody's door and bother them for no reason. But at the same time, we need to check. Do you have anything to say, Beth? Or
4: Well, it, 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 you've pretty much said it. Sometimes we just, I think it's, I want to say it's harder in the city because you see people around you all the time, maybe we should all have kind of a checklist of the people that we know are alone Um, and just call them every once in a while. I've got a long checklist, and I know I don't call the people as often as I should. So, you know, uh, we do need to reach out more. Um, It is very easy in a big city to be all alone with people all around you. In an apartment building, there are people coming and going in the apartments all around you, and nobody nobody checks their neighbor. Sometimes you don't know your neighbor. I don't mean to be mean to people. I don't mean to, you know, say that, um, you know, everybody in the city is mean. It's just so easy not to know someone's there. Um, So maybe if we just look around a little bit more and and just make sure look out for the elderly people and look out for those that are that are singles because you just never know it can, it can be very sad
3: okay well we do need to take a break right now we'll be ra- back in a few minutes with Joe Bowen from Catholic Extension
6: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information, but so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
7: Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now.
1: Welcome back
3: to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, sometimes you think you know of every possible Catholic organization that's around, but every once in a while something comes up that you never heard about, and that's what we're going to be talking about now. We're talking to Joe Boland, Vice President of the Mission at Catholic Extension. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. Okay, so what is, what is your organization? What is the, uh, the Mission at Catholic Extension?
2: Catholic extension has been around for about 112 years. It was founded in 1905 and it exists to build churches in the United States and to strengthen the Catholic church in the poorest regions of, of America regions that we would refer to kind of as, as missionary territory, uh, places like the Bush country in Alaska and uh, native American reservations and rural communities in the deep South. And so, uh, some of these um, places that don't have the same type of institutional and philanthropic strength as you would find in Catholic communities in uh, larger cities and uh, more suburban areas of the country. And so what we do is is work with dioceses um, throughout the country to help strengthen the Catholic Church. And one of the things that we're most proud of is that we have helped build and construct over these past 112 years over 12,000 churches and church facilities uh, throughout America. And incidentally, I was um, reading an article uh, that I came across and found out that there are 12,000 Dunkin' Donuts restaurants in the United States. So if you need any kind of point of reference about the sheer impact, the magnitude of that impact that Catholic Extension has had on the Catholic Church throughout the country, think about all the Dunkin' Donuts you see. And, And I know in my neighborhood, they're on every corner. And thats uh, we've actually built more uh, Catholic churches in the United States than there are Dunkin' Donut restaurants, if that gives uh, the listeners a visual. Uh, And so the the work of Catholic Extension is very significant, um, especially over these past 100 years. We've really been a um, very, very impactful organization uh, for the life of the Catholic Church in the United States.
3: Now, what is a Mission Parish?
2: Yeah, um, well, really, we would— define a, a mission parish as, as one of those places that that can't stand on its own two feet, um, uh, you know, kind of to put it plainly, in that really they're serving the poor. And um, in many communities, they cannot even afford to pay for the salary of a priest, say, uh, or a woman religious, a nun who might work there, or to perhaps uh, in some places keep their lights on. The uh, average mission parish that we help. And we help about a 1,000 communities uh, every year. Uh, their average collection on a Sunday might be somewhere between 250 and $300 a week. Uh, so that's not enough to kind of keep the operation going. And so what Catholic Extension does uh, with many of these parishes, it's just one facet of our work, uh, is to help ensure that the church can be present in these very, very uh, poor communities throughout the United States, because that's where the future, uh, in many respects, of the Catholic Church, is going to be is, is going to come from is from some of these smaller, poor communities. Uh, when Catholic Extension was first founded um, over a century ago, many of those poor communities that we helped were poor communities in in New England and in the Northeast and in the Mid Atlantic. And they now have the strength to be able to stand on their own two feet, but there's still many places in this country uh, that don't have that luxury yet, and so we're there to help uh, provide some assistance to them.
3: Now, what's your geographical extension? Where where do you w- what areas do you cover in the United States? Or do you go outside the United States?
2: Uh, we're mainly working with uh, the United States. We do uh, cover some of the U.S. territories like Puerto Rico and Guam and and Samoa. Um, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, but uh, re- mainly we're working uh, within the boundaries of the United States. And so we would cover everything from Alaska, many of the western states, certainly the U.S.-Mexico border region, uh, the deep south where the Catholic Church is very much a minority population, uh, and then some of the rural communities in between. And so it's really a very extensive We're working with 90 dioceses out of about 195 U.S. dioceses, Uh, so we work with a good portion of the Catholic Church here in the United States uh, to help uh, strengthen their presence.
3: So you're talking, you know, like 45, close to 50 percent of the dioceses in the United States.
2: That's right, and and even within those dioceses, you know, um, uh, you know, we don't necessarily work with. Not every parish needs our help. Uh, It might be that in a diocese like, say, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, that covers the entire state of, of, the, uh, of, of Arkansas. And so the diocese is very extensive, and so priests might be driving one to two hours to visit the three churches that are under their care. And so uh, every diocese looks a little bit different, uh, but oftentimes what they have in common is that they're very geographically extensive, and so that while they might have some churches that are doing fine in their city, out once you get outside those cities and out into some of these uh, you know, more mission or rural areas, that's where Catholic Extension really provides support.
5: Now, a
3: lot of our listeners are interested in history. How did your organization get started?
2: That's a very good question, and it's, um, it is very much connected to the history of the Catholic Church in the United States. Really, what had happened uh, around the turn of of last century, around uh, the early 1900s, is that the Church, the Catholic Church in the United States, was declared by the Vatican as no longer officially a mission territory. Meaning that uh, a lot of the dollars and a lot of the support that we were receiving from the European Church for so many years uh, was no longer going to be there. And so uh, the founder of Catholic Extension was a a brilliant uh, priest who was laboring in a, a rural Michigan parish. And he said, you know, in many respects, the United States continues to be very missionary. There's many rural areas. There's many impoverished areas where the church struggles to have a foothold. And so he went around the country and sort of assessed what the need was, and he established this organization called Catholic Extension, as a society to uh, welcome Catholics from some of the bigger cities, places like Chicago or New York or Boston, uh, to work with him and to work with this organization to help strengthen the church in some of these more rural communities where uh, you know, there, there wasn't the institutional strength. And so it very much uh, ties with uh, – it, it came out of a period when the United States was in transition Uh, and so he was filling a need that he saw in the Catholic Church.
3: And where was he from?
2: Uh, He was originally from Prince Edward Island, uh, Canada, but uh, was ordained as a priest for the Detroit Diocese and was working in a very rural community in Michigan, but ultimately came to Chicago, uh, where he was received by the Archbishop of Chicago to establish Catholic extension. And so he ended up becoming a, a Catholic uh, priest in Chicago, and then ultimately after Catholic Extension, after his 25 years or so as the president and founder of the organization, he became uh, the bishop of uh, Oklahoma City, and that's where he died, was in Oklahoma.
5: Now, if somebody
3: wanted to learn more about your organization, how would they do that?
2: Uh, well, we have for about the past um, 110 years, had a magazine, and now the magazine uh, comes out quarterly. That would be the first way to find out about uh, Catholic Extension. Uh, There we put in all the stories of these mission churches that are being supported by us, um, many of these different communities who are um, uh, very, very inspiring in what they're doing. But we also have a Facebook page, um, and then we also do broadcast episodes, Uh, where on Catholic television uh, you can see some of these episodes about uh, the great things happening in the Catholic Church in the United States, but oftentimes in these very forgotten, very marginalized, very poor communities that not all of us are are deeply aware of. All right, so what's your website? Our website is www.catholicextension.org.
3: You know, there's a lot of competition for charitable dollars. Why should somebody give to your organization?
2: I can't think, and we can't think, of anything more important in the United States than strengthening the Catholic Church uh, first. Uh, we know that the Catholic Church does uh, a lot of good in terms of its social ministries, in terms of its health ministries, but you can't do any of that work. You can't do any of the social work or any of the work to transform communities unless you first have people of faith, and that's exactly what Catholic Extension is focused on doing is helping strengthen the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith so that, so that there are people committed to this idea, uh, you know, that, that Christ is here to, uh, to be shared with the world and to bring that love into the world. Um, and so to help strengthen the faith first, you really are making a uh, commitment um, to, uh, to strengthening our society and our culture, we believe.
3: Joe Boland, Vice President of Mission at Catholic Extension. Thank you for the work you're doing, and let us know if you have any events in the New York area that you, the public might be interested in attending.
2: Thank you. Will do. It's been
3: a pleasure.
9: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens to me? Will my
8: assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have
2: property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of grandma?
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a lot of people call the Korean War the Forgotten War, but in my mind, the most forgotten war in, in U.S. history is World War I, and we're trying to correct that today. And we have with us one of the experts on the First World War, Edward Lengel. How are you doing today, sir?
10: Uh, I'm very good. How are you?
3: Okay, pretty good. Now, I have in front of me your book, Thunder and Flames. It, obviously, it's about the American expeditionary force in World War One. How were the Americans prepared for the war when, when they first entered it?
10: We were not prepared at all. There was an assumption among uh, most people in the United States, including President Woodrow Wilson, but many others as well, that even though this terrible war was raging in Europe, it had been since 1914, that we were going to be able to get away without getting actually involved in it uh, firsthand. So no real effort was made to prepare militarily or army. was tiny at the time that we entered the war, and we suddenly had to create an armed force of several million soldiers out of nothing. So uh, it was a matter of complete unpreparedness.
3: So the soldiers at the beginning for the American involvement of the war, where where were most of them were situated?
10: Well, the American Expeditionary Forces Army was uh, made up of, of a mixture of uh, volunteers uh, as well as draftees. And uh, they were brought from all over the country. And they were incorporated both into the regular army, which was just a tiny army that uh, had some soldiers posted in the Philippines as well as stateside and in Latin America. Uh, But they were also formed into a number of uh, larger National Guard divisions, particularly the 77th Division called the Statue of Liberty Division, the New York National Guard. And uh, they uh, they were forced into a framework that really wasn't ready to hold them. Uh, and trying to create these divisions out of nothing. And so uh, they were trained in a slapdash manner. Uh, Even their instructors really didn't know how to train them, prepare them for modern warfare. Most of what they did was was hiking and drilling. And uh, many of the troops, including in the 77th Division, by the time they got to the front, they didn't even know how to handle a rifle. So what happened? Well, they they, uh, encountered the German troops, who were very well-trained and uh, had been fighting on the Western Front for many years, and they suffered terribly. They, they suffered thousands of casualties. In one case, in the Meuse-Argonne, in a period of about three weeks, 26,000 Americans were killed, and that's about half the number of men killed in the entire Korean War. And uh, almost half the number of men killed in the entire Vietnam War conflict, all in a period of three weeks. And much of this was because of lack of training, lack of preparedness. There was no question, and I want to emphasize this, there's no question that the American troops were, were brave, they were dedicated, that they absolutely did their best. But they were in many respects let down by their country that did not prepare them for this conflict.
3: Now, they fought alongside the French for the, for the most they part, did. except for some troops in, in Belgium with the British.
10: There were some troops with the British, but most Americans fought alongside the French until the first uh, full American army was created in August of 1918. And that was a difficult relationship. Uh, Despite all the propaganda, despite all the talk about how the Americans and the French love each other, in practice, the alliance in France was difficult, both from Americans who were skeptical and unwilling to learn from uh, the French to French commanders who could at times be cynical, and sometimes they literally used the American forces as cannon fodder uh, for attacks that they themselves were unwilling to make. They would use American troops. And uh, there was a lot of difficulty, and uh, there were a lot of hard words passed between American and French commanders before the war ended.
3: How did the American troops eventually evolve and adapt as the war progressed, the American involvement in the war
10: progressed? They had to learn on the job. And this was a case where General John Pershing uh, emphasized individual initiative uh, among his troops. Uh, He didn't want them to learn kind of mass warfare. He didn't want them to be indoctrinated to lose their initiative. He encouraged them and trained them to think for themselves and to be able to adapt under difficult circumstances. So there were places like when the United States Marines fought in Bellow Wood in June of 1918, the first couple of days they were in the fight they took terrible casualties because they didn't quite know how to deal with the germans but once they got into those woods individual marines uh, without even direction from their officers they adapted remarkably quickly and simply learned on the job how to take advantage of cover and terrain how to improvise how to confuse the germans by uh, using german bugle calls or Calling out in German to misdirect them, and the one thing that sets the United States uh, army and military apart in World War I is how quickly it adapted and how quickly it learned.
3: What's your opinion of General Pershing and his conduct
10: during the war? I have some issues with with Pershing, and that I think he was too unwilling to learn lessons from what had happened before he arrived at the front although i think that he was right to encourage his troops to to display individual initiative he also thought that any attempt to learn from the british or french would actually corrupt the american troops and so if he had been willing more willing to encourage his officers and and troops to take lessons from their allies, I think many lives would have been saved.
3: What was the impact of the American troops on the outcome of the war?
10: I think they had a tangible impact. I don't think that they actually won the war. There were claims made after the war that the Americans saved Paris or that all the French were running away until the Americans arrived. And that's really unfair and it's also not true. However, the Americans, particularly once they began to arrive in strength, they destroyed quite a large number of German divisions. They had a real physical impact uh, on the Western Front. They definitely demoralized the Germans, gave the Germans a sense that they were never going to win. And they also bucked up the morale of the French and the British uh, as they realized that the Americans were here Uh, that we had almost limitless uh, resources. And so definitely the the United States had a tangible impact on winning the war.
3: Why did the Germans surrender when they did?
10: Well, the whole global situation was looking terrible for them. Uh, All of their allies had collapsed by the fall of 1918. Uh, The blockade, the British blockade, had reduced the German people to practical starvation. But, in truth, the German army had been shattered by years of fighting on the Western Front, and it simply lacked the ability to resist by the fall of nineteen eighteen They'd suffered repeated defeats at the hands of the British and the French and the americans they They lacked the resources and supplies and especially the morale to continue uh, and It's worth mentioning too the uh the influenza epidemic that spread across Europe and the world in the fall of 1918, hit the German army especially hard. It was racked by sickness and disease and really was in no shape to fight.
3: Can you give the audience an idea of the casualties, both American and European, during the war?
10: Well, it's regarded now that probably about 10 million people were killed in World War I. The vast majority of those were soldiers, It was different from World War II in in the sense that the impact on the civilians was not as great. There were no cities that were burned out by strategic bombing. Uh, Most of the the casualties were between soldiers. So uh, if you look at the number of dead, the, uh, the British, the French, the Germans suffered between one to about two and a half million dead per country. Uh, during World War One, The United States, by contrast, had about uh, just over 50,000 killed, as I recall. So on the scale, compared to the European nations, it was not nearly as great. But for the period that we were in, again, if, if you consider three weeks' time in September and October of 1918, 26,000 Americans killed in three weeks. That's pretty intense. And it had a very powerful impact on uh, on American culture and the American people.
3: In retrospect, why today is World War I kind of forgotten?
10: There are a lot of reasons for that, and I'll, I'll try to be just very brief. Part of it was just the timing. Uh, after World War One, Americans had a feeling that they had in some ways wasted their time. They had not made the world a better place as they'd hoped to. And so they wanted to forget about it. The Great Depression intervened. World War II intervened, and they both seemed so much terrible than World War One for the United States. Uh, and then, uh, by the time World War One hits its 50th anniversary, that's uh, we're right in the middle of Vietnam. So the timing was not good. But I also think that World War One does not fit in with Americans' concept of what a war is supposed to be. There are no obvious good guys or bad guys. The, the fighting is brutal. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. And it doesn't have the, the same type of a quick and dramatic story and resolution that, that we like to have when we talk about wars.
3: The, the name of the book in front of me is Thunder and Flames, Americans in the Crucible of Combat, 1917-18. You're working on another book about uh, World War I?
10: I'm working on a book about the Lost Battalion. But it's in particular about four men with New York City and World War I as a backdrop. There were three Medal of Honor recipients, Charles Whittlesey and George McMurtry, who both fought in the 77th New York Division. And uh, there's also Corporal Alvin York, who was involved in the same action. And then the journalist Damon Runyon, who was one of the first journalists to report what happened in the lost battalion which was uh, several companies of uh, troops, mostly from New York City, who were surrounded in the forests of France by German troops in October of 1918, attacked on all sides for five days, and they refused to surrender. And it's, it's just a great human story.
3: The book in front of me, again, is Thunder and Flames, Americans in the Crucible of Combat, 1917-18, by Edward Langell, our guest on Connor's Corner. And thank you for sharing your thoughts on history.
10: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: Okay. Well, again, thanks to Mr. Langell talking about World War One. And, you know, like I had no idea until we had the conversation that uh, the United States lost 26,000 men in three weeks.
4: Did you know that, Beth? I didn't. And I, I know, I, like most people, know very little— about World War 1 from to my mind it was always the war that should never have been fought and i uh, i guess it set the scene for World War 2 so it was always just a hideous war to me but i don't know much about it you know i'm not a fan of president wilson i'm not a fan of that whole early era of the 20th century um it's just just tragic, tragic that it was ever fought.
3: Now, next week we're going to be focusing a little bit on World War II. And our interview next week is really one of the most remarkable people I've ever spoken to. And, I listen, we've spoken to a lot of remarkable people on the show. But, you know, 92 years old, World War II pilot shot down, captured by the Axis powers by the Austrians. And... He's got a great story to tell, and that's going to be next week. Colonel Brown of the Tuskegee Airmen. I guess David Kincaid is telling us to say goodnight.
4: Bye-bye. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this
1: song the way. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song the